Good morning. Now it's my chance to share a little bit. Uh, it is good uh, to be back. As many of you know, I was gone for about a week uh, in southern Ontario, connecting with Pastor Kevin Weeb uh, over at New Life Christian Fellowship. New Life Christian Fellowship, it's a cool church. They're a, a small rural EMC church down a few miles of gravel, sort of out in the middle of nowhere. And so I immediately kind of felt at home there. Uh, but one significant difference between New Life Christian Fellowship and our church is that they meet in what was previously a Catholic church. And so I grabbed, this is an image of it here on uh, Google Street View. It's this beautiful brick building with stained glass windows and intricate wood detailing all over inside. It's a very different sort of place than here. Uh, but it still feels like coming home. I kind of said when I showed up there that Whenever I have the opportunity to connect with another church, and it helps that it's another church within our conference, but it's always true, there is this deep sense of togetherness. To so walk into a place like that, people I've never met, place I've never been, and yet somehow we worship together. And when we show up here at Pleasant Valley on a Sunday morning and they show up over there, uh, there is this connectedness that occurs. We are all worshiping the same God together as a part of the larger church. And so it's a cool thing. Uh, to be able to experience that. Uh, but the reason that I was out in southern Ontario is because Kevin is the editor of Theodidactos, which is an EMC uh, theological publication. It's a journal that gets released by the EMC. And this last spring, I was tapped uh, to be the assistant editor of that journal and, and actually to be a part of a bit of a shift in the focus of Theodidactos because what they are doing is they are planning to, they are well along the way now we are, uh, to launch a podcast next year. And so this week, Kevin and I, we made it through uh, what turned out to be 17 episodes of recording this podcast. Here we are in his office. And so we'll start to kind of stitch these things together and it will start releasing in January. And so this is my little plug uh, for that podcast. It's called The Armchair Anabaptist, and we've interviewed a bunch of pastors and theologians and academics and authors and counselors and all sorts for this first season, and this first season is going to focus on peace, on enemy love, which has historically been uh, a distinctive of Mennonites and Anabaptists, the belief that Jesus calls us to a life of peace. So really excited about kind of digging into that in that way and had a, had a good little adventure going out to work on it. To travel out there, of course, uh, I flew. I booked a flight, a round trip on Swoop Airlines, and uh, flew out to Hamilton to get picked up by Kevin there. And I seriously considered driving. It is a, it is a long uh, and, a, and a fairly boring drive. It's about 20 hours. Uh, and it's a two-and-a-half-hour flight, but it was almost 50-50 for me as I was trying to figure out how I was going to head out there, uh, mostly because I do not like flying. I don't enjoy being in a plane. Part of that is I'm, I'm just a big guy. I'm a tall guy. I'm not especially comfortable jammed into a seat on a plane for several hours. But there's more to it than just being a little bit squished. I find flying unsettling. It makes me nervous. As, as the plane speeds down the runway and begins to lift off, I have to sort of consciously choose not to sort of clench my fists. I have to sort of focus on my breathing. It's a tough thing for me. 
I, I don't think I'm alone in this. How many people would go, I, I don't really, I don't enjoy flying. I don't like getting on a plane. Yeah, there's a few hands out there. This is something that uh, I was hoping that more of you would be with me on this. No, I've, but generally this is a truth, that there are, there are many of us out there that don't uh, enjoy flying very much. It's a pretty common thing. And I was trying to figure out what it is about flying that unsettles me. Why, why I don't like flying enough that a, a 20-hour drive sort of felt like maybe that would be preferable to a two or two and a half hour flight. And I think, I'm not totally sure, but I think at the, at the root of it, what it comes down to, I was thinking about this as we sat on the runway and prepared to take off. I was going, what about this is unsettling? I think at the root of it, it comes down to a lack of control. Flying statistically is safe. It's the safest form of travel. You are far, far more likely to be involved on a deadly accident on your way to the airport than you are in the plane itself. I looked up the stats, and in North America, flying is literally thousands of times safer than driving in a car. But despite that, flying isn't always a smooth experience, and so much of that is out of our control. There can be external factors that make the journey difficult. There can be bad weather and storms and wind and turbulence and mechanical issues with the plane, things that are difficult to go through. On my flight out of Hamilton, there was a strong crosswind, and you could feel the pilot already having to adjust to keep the plane on the runway as it went. And as soon as we took off, I was sitting right in the back of the plane, and you could feel the whole plane kind of sheer to the side a little bit as it fought the wind, and I could see hundreds of heads in front of me kind of tossing back and forth as we fought this turbulence and head up and we got above the clouds into smooth sailing, but that takeoff was not fun. And there are all sorts of things that can make flying scary. Here I am sitting in this giant metal tube that does not seem physically like it should be able to be up in the air with a bunch of strangers and at the front behind some thick steel locked door is a pilot who I don't know, I've never met who is flying a plane that I have literally no idea how to fly myself. And, and I'm here, and, and, and he or she is there, and my life is literally in their hands. And my hands get a little sweaty just thinking about it. And I think regardless of how you feel about flying, that maybe is a relatable feeling. That it's something that we all have to do, whether we go into surgery somewhere, whether we head up on stage to be a participant in a magic trick, like whatever we are doing, there are situations where we are putting our lives into other people's hands. I asked Aaron, I, I, was, I was trying to brainstorm, I asked Aaron, what, what are situations where you have to put your life into somebody else's hands? And she immediately had this long list. Every time you're getting into a vehicle with someone, every time you let someone serve you a meal, Every time you drop your kids off at school or with a babysitter, when you go out onto the road in your own vehicle and you're next to other drivers, in all of these situations, in one way or another, you are putting your life into someone else's hands. We, we actually have to do this whether we want to or not. Just by living, we are relying on people around us. To, uh, to some extent, we are putting our lives in others' hands. Some, some of people who are trustworthy, some who are not, some who we know, some who we don't. But especially in, 
these more clear situations, something like boarding a plane, it takes trust. Maybe you could say more accurately that it takes faith. It is a clear, conscious choice to say, am I going to allow this person to guide me, or to protect me, when I can't do it on my own? How does this relate to the Good Shepherd, to John chapter 10? I'm sure some of you are already getting a little bit suspicious. You've got an idea of where we're going with this. To expand it a little bit further, when I arrived at the airport, I walked in, checked my bags, went through security, and wandered over to wait near the gate. And I sat by the gate until the opportunity was presented to me to board the plane. And I stood there recognizing that I now have a choice to make. I could stay in the relative safety of the airport, although, like I said, even if it doesn't feel like it, I'm probably in greater statistical danger on the ground than in the air, but I could stay here where it feels safe, or I could go through the gate, which gets me access to the plane. I can choose to trust the pilot to take me on a journey to this new destination. As you know, we are in the middle of a series on the I am statements of Jesus, as found in John. There are seven statements. We've covered three of them so far. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. And today is number four, right in the middle. Uh, and, and this is, I think in some ways, you could argue that this is kind of the crescendo of those statements. This is the mountaintop. They're all good, we've got, we've got some great ones coming up, but this is an incredible passage that we are digging into today. Maybe nowhere else in scripture does Jesus so clearly and powerfully state his desire to save us, to guide us, to know us, to be our shepherd. But last week, Darren spoke about Jesus' statement that he is the gate through which we must pass. There are dangers out there. Thieves and robbers, but the gate is provided for us to enter under the authority and the protection and the safety of the shepherd. And as Darren mentioned last week, Jesus' statement about the gate really does seem to be something that is ramping up to his main point, what he really wants to speak about, which is that he is the good shepherd. And this idea about Jesus as the good shepherd really is, it's a beautiful analogy. It's a rich analogy for us. I think Darren used the words last week that it was a warm and fuzzy passage that maybe undersells it a little bit. But there's no question, it is a deeply, it's an emotional passage. I think it's something that we can connect to on an intuitive level. Even if we've never had sheep or been shepherds or lived in a culture of shepherds, we kind of, we get this. It's, a, it's an evocative image. It's easy to imagine what a shepherd is, the way that they protect and care for and sacrifice for their sheep. One pastor speaking about this passage, he says, the, pa the picture of Christ as a shepherd invites us to consider the great love he has for those who are a part of his flock. We've been singing songs about this already today. The life of a good shepherd was not an easy one. Besides the difficult task of keeping watch over the many sheep, the shepherd was also responsible for finding proper water and adequate nourishment for the sheep that by their nature were afraid of nearly everything. 
Sheep are so easily frightened that they won't drink from rapidly moving water, even when very thirsty. Hence David states that the Lord, who is his shepherd, leads him beside still waters. Then there were issues of disease, exposure to the elements, robbers to contend with, wild animals who would devour the sheep if given a chance. There was even the issue of dealing with hirelings who, when danger presented itself, simply ran away to preserve their own life rather than the sheep. To them, it was only a job. Shepherding, this pastor concludes, can be a hazardous profession. It is dangerous. And the shepherd leads the sheep through these many dangers, keeps them safe, provides what they need, just like a pilot has to get passengers through all sorts of difficult situations. The sheep need to trust the shepherd to take them where they need to go, even when the way is difficult, even when the dangers are real. One more note before we walk through this passage today. I know it's been a lot of build-up here, uh, but there is a way that this text has been preached sometimes uh, where the focus is the sheep, specifically how sort of dumb and lost the sheep are and how we are lost and dumb like the sheep and we don't know what's good for us and we, and we hurt ourselves in all sorts of ridiculous ways without the guidance of a shepherd. And don't hear me arguing the fact that sheep are dumb. Sheep, if they finish grazing on grass, will simply continue to eat the dirt in front of them instead of looking for a new area to eat. The pastor I quoted earlier talked about how easily frightened sheep are, right? Refusing to drink from moving water. I'm also not going to argue that people can't be very dumb sometimes. I've watched enough America's Funniest Home videos to know that, you know, not everybody is cut out to be a doctor or a lawyer. I remember hearing a comedian talking about the average intelligence level, and he said, what you have to remember is, think about how dumb the average person is, and then remember that half of them are dumber than that. <laughs> I'm not going to walk any further down this road. What I want to point out and call you to focus on as we work our way through this passage is that this passage isn't really about the sheep at all. This passage is about the shepherd. The point of this passage is not, look how helpless and stupid these sheep are. Rather, the point is, look at how good and loving and caring this shepherd is. So it's just a gentle reminder about where our eyes are focused as we read this. This passage isn't about the sheep. This passage is about the shepherd. I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to read uh, from verses 7 to 18. And I'm going to start in verse 7, which overlaps a little bit uh, from last week's scripture, but it gives a little bit of context for this main passage today. So we're going to start in John chapter 10, verse 7, and read to verse 18. This is what it says. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's the section that Darren covered last week. Now we get into what we're focusing on today. I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is one of those passages. It's beautiful to me in its straightforwardness. Sometimes Jesus talks in riddles. He uses parables that seem designed to confuse or to raise our eyebrows or to shock us. And to be clear, there is some shocking stuff here, but it's simple. It's simple and it's true. And so as, as we go through this, if you've grown up in the church, if you've read this passage, if you know this story, if you've talked about this before, I don't think there is very much that I am going to say today that you haven't heard before, that you don't already know. And, and that actually is exactly what makes a passage like this so beautiful. And it's what makes it important to come back to and to sit with. This is foundational. It's straightforward. It's also true that sometimes I come to a passage to preach on and, and I feel a pressure about how can I open this up in a way that people have never heard before or thought about before? How can I apply this to our modern life in a way that's going to make people go, whoa, now I see this in a totally new light. What, what Greek or Hebrew word is, is sitting under the surface here that transforms how we look at this passage? And here today, instead, I simply want to rest in this with you to recognize the deep and powerful and true promises that Jesus gives here. This passage is like a hug. It gives us great security. So in the time we have left, I want to walk through three things we learn about Jesus here. We've been talking through this series about how important it is to truly understand who somebody is. That we can know all about someone, but it doesn't mean that we know them. That we are in relationship with them. When we get someone's identity or character wrong, when we don't understand who they are, that can lead to huge consequences. Embarrassment or awkwardness for sure, and much more serious consequences in some cases. These I am statements are recorded by John because the church was wrestling with his exact question. Who is Jesus really? Not just what did he do, not just what did he say, not just what is correct theology about him, but who is he? And we have Jesus in his own words giving us these sentences that provide entry, that provide access into understanding his character, into entering into relationship with him. So three points I want to make out of this passage. First, Jesus is good. What does being good mean? Well, it means that Jesus lays down his life for us and he knows us. I told you, I wasn't lying. We're going back to the basics today. This is exactly what makes it so important to return to. This is the foundation. So first, Jesus is good. 
This is actually the only time in these statements that Jesus gives any kind of a qualifier or adjective in these statements. He doesn't say, I am the delicious bread, or I am the smooth gate, or I am the productive vine, or I am the bright light. But he does say here, I am the good shepherd. And in fact, he repeats it several times. He starts off this section in verse 11 saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, there are a few things that are going on here. First of all, I think by emphasizing the goodness of the shepherd, not simply by saying, I am a shepherd, but I am a specific shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Especially in the understanding of that word good in Jesus' time, that emphasis will have raised the Pharisees' eyebrows. Because when you talk about the good shepherd, there will have been a specific Old Testament figure that came to mind for the Pharisees. When Pharisees thought about the shepherd or the good shepherd or the best shepherd, for them, they will have been thinking about David, about King David. And just like Jesus does in chapter 5 in John, just a few chapters earlier, where he says, before Abraham was, I am, where he places himself above Abraham, here he does the same with David. He draws comparison to these foundational heroes in Jewish history, and he not only connects himself to these people, but he claims, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, that he accomplishes what they accomplished better and more completely. The Old Testament often speaks to God as a shepherd as well. Most famously in the Psalm of David, where David, a shepherd himself, says, the Lord is my shepherd. By calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus will have been making that connection. But Jesus is also generous here in his explanation. He speaks exactly about why he is the good shepherd, what it means in this statement. And the first thing we see, the first statement about the shepherd is that he is good because he lays down his life for his sheep. It's another little twist there. The sheep that are raised in the area where Jesus is, the sheep that are raised between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, were primarily raised, according to a commentary that I read, were primarily raised not for people to eat, but they were raised as sacrificial lambs. They were raised to be provided as sacrifices. It's actually significant. This clicked for me when I was preparing this message in a way that hadn't before, that the angels appearing to the shepherds in Bethlehem, proclaiming the good news, were likely talking to shepherds who were tasked with raising the very sheep that were going to be used as sacrifices at the temple. It wasn't just good news for the shepherds, it was good news for the sheep. What more appropriate place could the angels have chosen to announce the coming of the Lamb of God who would take on the sins of the world than to the shepherds watching over the very sheep that were destined for sacrifice? So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, that's an especially powerful image because in that area, sheep were being raised literally to sacrificially lay down their lives for the people in that area. Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb and the good shepherd. He provides both those roles for us. Compare that, Jesus says, to the hired hand. The hired hand isn't the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep, runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's the hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
He's got nothing at stake. He has no relationship. He's in it for his own gain. And so when the going gets tough, he's gone. Jesus says, I'm not like that hired hand. I'm the good shepherd. And again, it's a simple truth, but just allow it to be reminded, allow yourself to be reminded of it again. The wolf here in this, if you're looking for an analogy, it seems to me you could get specific with what it means. You could go, oh, the wolf is false teachers, or the wolf is Pharisees. But I think it's best viewed in the big picture. The wolf here represents our greatest enemies, the things that divide and attack. Sin and death. And so then this becomes so powerful, I think. This is a truth that we have to repeat to ourselves over and over again. Jesus is not scared away by the sin and darkness and hurt in our lives. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is not scared away by the sin and darkness and hurt in our lives. This is a lie that even if we believe the truth in our minds, this lie can easily infect our hearts, that God is disgusted by or repelled by us in our sin, in our pain, in our imperfection. Does God hate sin? Yes. But through Jesus' death on the cross, he has victory over sin. He comes close to us, not to condemn us, but to save us. Jesus does not abandon us to the wolf. He doesn't look at our situation and go, yeah, but that sheep kind of deserved it. I'll move on to a new flock. No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter what we are walking through, Jesus stays with us. He cares for us. He walks with us. He protects us through those places, through the valley of the shadow of death, as David writes so beautifully in Psalm 23, the good shepherd stays with us. And in laying down his life for us, in being willing to fight the ultimate battle against sin and death, and in resurrecting victorious over those powers, he has proved that he is truly the good shepherd. He is worthy of being followed. So he's good because he died for us. He protects us. But the shepherd is also good because he's close to us. He cares for us. The word that Jesus says here is that the good shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. A shepherd needs to be in relationship with his sheep. So you, you can make an argument about how intelligent sheep are, but there's one thing that is for sure. They won't follow just any voice. I've actually got a little video uh, to demonstrate this. Maybe actually, can you pause it for a moment? I'll just give a little bit of context here. I think it'll become obvious, but this is a, a group of people who approached a field with a shepherd, and they've been given the challenge to say, go, try and call these sheep like I might call them and see what happens. And so there's a few people that try it out here. That's the context for this video. Yeah. <laughs> 
my, uh, my grandpa raises beef cattle out in the Kola area. And I remember when I would visit them sometimes, we would end up going out to the pasture uh, where they were grazing. And the cattle would be off somewhere in a corner. And we would stand there and I would try to call in the cows. I would put on my best impression of my grandpa. I knew exactly what he said. It's, come boss, come boss, come boss, come boss. And he would yell for these cows and I would try and, come boss, come boss. I would try and get my grandpa voice exactly right. And I thought I was doing a good job. And they would ignore me. Wouldn't, and not a single head would turn. And then my grandpa would come beside me and to my ear do exactly the same thing in exactly the same voice. And up these cattle would get and they'd come running. It was this crazy thing. They knew his voice. Jesus is our good shepherd, and he says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Some translations say, my sheep hear my voice. That word know there, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, that's not just an intellectual word. Well, my sheep know about me. They have a, an intellectual or a mental understanding of me. Rather, it is much closer to our word for love or a word to be in deep relationship with. He says in verse 15 that I know the Father and the Father knows me. And then just a couple verses later, he says, the reason my Father loves me is that I laid down my life. It seems like those words are almost interchangeable here. Uh, the word has a similar meaning to the word love talked about in marriage as well. In Genesis, it talks about how Adam knew his wife. And then they have children. It's a word for deep intimacy, for connection. It's a word for love. Jesus' love, by the way, extends out of our circles and into surprising places. Darren mentioned last week that he's got these verses circled in his Bible with a question mark. What could this mean? What is this we're all referring to when Jesus says that he's got other sheep that are not of this flock who will also be here? The obvious surface truth here is that Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience and he was preparing the soil for the Gentiles who were going to be brought into the fold. But it continues to be an important reminder for us today that we must be careful, we must be hesitant to draw lines around who is in and who is out. I'm not saying there aren't lines. There's a gate and there's a shepherd. But it is not our job to establish those boundaries. That's the job of the shepherd. And it is a good shepherd who we can trust. So that's it. Jesus is the good shepherd. Why is he good? Because he cares for us because we're in relationship with him. We know him and he knows us. And most of all, as Jesus repeats five times throughout this short passage, he lays down his life for us. He gave everything to be with us. And so following Jesus is very different than flying. This is not some situation where I'm stepping through the gate onto a plane to trust some unknown, unseen, untouchable pilot on the other side of a locked door. This is an invitation to enter into relationship with the good shepherd who makes himself known to us, who knows us, who loves us, who protects us, and who lays down his life for us. Amen? Amen.